Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast for the films you might love, but you can't take around polite company. I am Mark Tavio. And I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are joined once again by film critic Mike D'Angelo for one of the more obscure and flat out surprising movies we've tackled yet. We'll talk about why that might be, what inspired Mike to pick it, and if this is the first rom-com to revolve around an act of bestiality. The film is Bobcat Goldthwaite's 2006 dark comedy, Sleeping Dogs Lie. Woof. Bark, bark. (laughs) All right. Now that silliness is over, again... I am honored to introduce Mike D'Angelo. He is one of the very first online film critics whose work has appeared in the AV Club, The Dissolve, Las Vegas Weekly, Nerve Entertainment Weekly, Time Out New York, Esquire, Alternate Ending, among others, and his personal site, The Man Who Viewed Too Much. These days, he is writing directly for you on his Patreon page. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive reviews going back a few years now, And depending on what tier you choose, you can vote on and even enter films into a weekly poll, which he then has to watch and review. So Mike is now at your bidding, as well as ours for the next hour. Uh, Mike, we are thrilled to have you back. Happy to be here. And uh, I... I got to say, given the nature of your podcast, surprisingly enough, I think we might have talked about this the first time, I forget, but uh, I had anticipated that the whole requesting aspect would be much more in the unwatchables vein than it has turned out to be. For the most part, people have been very good about requesting actually good films for me to watch and not terrible films that they're <laughs> inflicting upon me. Uh, there, was, there have been a couple of those. They made me watch... Freddie, did, was that you? Did you make me watch Freddie Got Fingered again? Okay, so I, I did nominate it. <laughs> okay. I nominated it, but it never won. And you actually, I think, ended up just getting around to it because the 20-year mark had passed. Or oh, something. that's right. Okay. So, so. Uh, I did try, though. And <laughs> I think it was, a, it was an excellent piece of writing. I was very Thank you. Uh, happy to see what you thought about it. I, uh, I went <laughs> at, at great length about my reasons for not liking it much. So Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, I think, actually, one of your favorite lines, I think, that I've ever read came out of that review when you called Tom Green a one-shit wonder. <laughs> so <laughs> He also gives elephants hand yeah. jobs, though. You know, that's that's another shit. At least two or three shits. Oh, well, there, that's actually kind of a, something it has in common with this movie, <laughs> slightly. A little bit. A Spoilers. little bit, yeah. <laughs> to- tonally, they're very far apart, which is what matters to me. So Yeah, thank God. So, but yeah, we did talk about Freddy Got Fingered on one of our first episodes, and uh, the last time we had you on was to talk about Irreversible, uh, which uh, you had a very interesting kind of personal story about people storming out of the theater in mass during that, and I'm curious to hear if there's anything about this particular movie that got a similar reaction. Not that I recall. I mean, I saw this at... uh the first time I saw it was at Sundance in 2006. Um, I don't have any particularly strong memories of that screening, so I'm going to say it was not marked by people um, leaving in disgust or anything. So unlike most of the characters in the movie, they accepted her. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they, uh, I don't, I don't, my memory is that the critical reaction was at best 
mixed and I was very much on the higher end of that. But, uh, but I do not remember people leaving. So I, I don't think that happened, but I couldn't swear to it. Well, and this is one of those where if you make it through the first scene, then you can probably handle the rest. Right. And also <laughs> most people who were seeing it, like I tend to go into, fil- at film festivals, I try to know as little as possible about films in advance when I can, but most people don't operate that way. So most people who were sitting down to see that film, which had a different title at the time, it was called Stay. Um, Whoa. When it was... Yeah, which is, I think, a better title. Sleeping Dogs Lie is not bad, but... I like Stay. Stay has a cute, you know, double meaning. It's a command to a dog and a plea to a loved one. And the reason, I was curious, I was like, why did they change it again? I was like, there must have been another movie called Stay around that time. So I looked it up and there was, but it's really bizarre. I've completely remember, you would think you would remember this movie when I tell you who is involved in it. It was directed by Mark Forster, of, you know, Finding Neverland mm. and uh, Monster's Ball and other notable, if not necessarily good films. It was written by David Benioff of oh. 25th Hour and Game of Thrones. And it starred, get this, it starred Ewan McGregor, Naomi Watts, and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> what happened? You know what? I think I know what movie you're talking about. Too. I never saw it. I didn't either. I could picture the poster <laughs> or the, yeah, the I, VHS tape in the video store sitting there. I had completely forgotten about this movie's existence. Like, completely. <laughs> Weird. To the point where I was staring at the IMDb entry going, this is real? I, <laughs> yeah. But that had to have been the reason why they changed the title, I would think. There are some other movies called Sleeping Dogs Lie, although one was afterwards, I guess. So Yeah, it's an obvious... There are only so many titles, really. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, it is kind of funny to think about somebody looking for some other sleeping dogs lie and they start watching this. Yes. My only objection is like, I'm annoyed about the killer because there's, there's an, if the other movie is too famous, like if John Woo has made a really well-known movie called The Killer, then find another title, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. sure. That's just me. So uh, yeah, let's talk about Bobcat Goldthwaite. Um, I guess if you're a child of the 80s, I would imagine that you would know him from the Police Academy films or just this general stand-up character that he had. I recognize that voice, that weird voice yeah. he does, but I don't. I didn't know anything ah! else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was good. Thank you. <laughs> ah! I actually, I, I owned his first album on vinyl. I'm that old. Um, it was called Meet Bob, M-E-A-T. Um, showed him, <laughs> okay. Yeah, surrounded by slabs of meat or something like that. Hilarious. Um, I was, I was, I'd never saw any of, still have not to this day seen any of the police Academy movies. It was just not my, not my style of comedy, but, um, but I did, uh, somewhere in my teens, I caught him doing a stand-up act on probably Letterman or somewhere like that. And, um, and thought he was hilarious. So I was very into him as a stand-up. Um, he only really kind of did one thing, <laughs> but uh, it was distinctive uh, and and attention grabbing. And um, and then he made a film that I still have never seen and almost watched before we did this recording, um, Shakes the Clown, because um, I was like, well, if we're going to talk about Sleeping Dogs Lie, maybe now is the time for me to finally sit down and watch Shakes the Clown. Um, but then I looked on Letterboxd and there were like, eight of my friends who have seen it and none of them liked it. It was all like two and a half and lower ratings. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. 
That's kind of turned me off a little bit too, because that is one that I've heard about. It's definitely kind of a cult movie now. And uh, he's had this, I, he's pretty much like he doesn't do the comedian thing. I mean, I think he is still, I guess, a comedian, but he doesn't do that character anymore. And he's, I think, way better known now for like fully transitioned into filmmaking. Yeah. And uh, he shoots a lot of, I believe he is uh, very heavily directing other comedians' stand-up specials. I think that's kind of his specialty now. Right. So it's one of the more, whatever you think of his movies, it is one of the more successful like transitions into actually becoming a behind the camera filmmaker. It, well, yes and no. We're going to talk about the filmmaking in this. Oh, yeah. In this film. <laughs> well, as far as what oh. he spends his time doing. Yeah. I'm impressed. I don't know how successful we can really say it was, but I, I sure. would like to believe that he has picked up some fundamentals since he made this film. Right. <laughs> And uh, he's had some strange things, like he he did a Bigfoot uh, found footage horror movie called Willow Creek. Yes, I, I watched a little bit of that, and it did not appeal to me. I think I watched the first 10 minutes, as you may know. I watched the first 10 minutes of many, many films just to see if they might grab me, and um, and that one did not. But uh, but his, his career has been interesting. I, I'm always, anytime I hear that he's done something, I perk up a little bit. I may not actually end up seeing it, but I'm interested. Yeah, and I feel like his most well-known movie is probably World's Greatest Dad from 2009, which, because at least because it has Robin Williams in, a, in the starring role. And I feel like that got a lot of critical praise when it came out too, even though that's one of the few I have seen by him and I was a little lukewarm on it, but... Yeah, me too. It was like billed as like a Robin Williams, like come back to some sort of dramatic place or something, I feel like. Right. And it has the whole like Dear Evan Hansen uh, plot basically of like a, a teenager who commits suicide. And then they, he constructs this whole uh, narrative around him being a great person. And uh, yeah, it was ambitious, I guess. And it definitely shows that he has more on his mind than just making straight ahead comedies, uh, which I think is in this film's favor too. But yeah, let's let's talk about Sleeping Dogs Lie then, slash stay or whatever you want to call it. I would I would like to request doing something slightly well, I'm guessing it's slightly unorthodox, which is before I talk about why I chose this particular film, I would like to hear what you guys thought of it. Oh. Just briefly. I'm really curious. All right. Uh so I guess, well, I don't do you want to start, Seth? I could start. I don't care. Go ahead. I was like pleasantly surprised and i think that's like a, that is just a thing about it i wonder what a second viewing would be like because it is just so like the ride of it is just you don't know where it's all going and how a movie based around this woman sucking dog cock i'm wondering how my how many times we say dog cock in this podcast it's probably so, going to be a lot it's gonna be a lot but i'm gonna say it again dog she's a dog cock and there's no <laughs> way to avoid it Quite frankly. No. I'm budgeting you, Seth. You've got four left. And uh, yeah, you're just like, that is the opening of the movie is her in college and doing this thing that, you know, could understandably make people turn off the whole movie. I was just, I don't know. I was actually like impressed at how much of this, like, kind of threw me for a loop. Like, even in a dramatic sense, like I love like following the more just basic soap opera beats of everything of like, there's, there's like the first movie, which you think is going to be the whole thing with like the boyfriend and the mom and everything. And that's going to be the whole movie. And that's only just like half of it. Then they like break. She breaks up with the boyfriend because he, well, he breaks up with her basically because 
finds out about the dog talk and everything. And then her life goes on in like this very like, not, I don't want to say like capital R realism or something, but it was, I was impressed at how it, how it goes on to like, now she has another boyfriend and her, she has new problems and there's a, there's this funeral she's got to go to blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I just like, I, I found it really, uh, like the dog cock was a good jump off point for a surprisingly good, like little, I don't know, like a cute little soap opera thing about lying or maybe we should lie. I don't know how I feel about the ultimate like moral of it. Cause I mean, I do land on just like, don't give her such a hard time for sucking right. dog cock in college. <laughs> uh, I feel You're like, down to one more, one more use. <laughs> but I feel like the movie is uh, yeah, almost like, I don't know. It's both like praising her and giving her like kudos for being honest about herself and also just being like, shut up. Please don't tell us about the dog cock. That's it. I'm out of dog cock. <laughs> you're out. You're out. So uh, <laughs> I, the way this movie starts out to me almost seems like a creative writing assignment that your first scene has to be the, uh, somebody not quite seeing, but describing about how they gave a dog oral sex then you have to make a rest of the movie that's still funny, but actually takes it seriously and is sensitive and insightful and maybe even moving at the end. And I actually, I think that he mostly pulls that off and I did find it funny and I did find it a little bit profound in terms of the unconventionality of the the themes and the the message kind of where it ends up. So... I really like this movie. Oh, good. I, I, the reason that I asked you guys to go first is because I had not seen it since I watched it twice in 2006. I saw it at Sundance, and then I saw it again about six months later. I assume it says press screening in my tag, so I assume it was right before it was released because um, I reviewed it, I think, for somebody. And then I had not seen it since. So I watched it last night, and about 20 minutes into it, I was like, these guys must think I'm insane. and and it was not really it was not because i was watching this going oh my god this movie sucks but it's so and we'll talk about this it's so mediocre to bad as a cinematic object yes that i was like are they going to be able to look past that and get to where it actually gets really interesting and i'm glad to hear that you did because it's it's rough sledding for a while and, yeah. and the things the things that make it rough sledding never go away they just get sort of overridden to some degree yeah it feels and looks like i don't know borderline student film or like low very like low budget kind of filmmaking i don't know how to characterize it exactly like the cameras or how it looks something about it does not like immediately hits even like a like a viewer who doesn't know anything about that as not Hollywood, like not a Hollywood look, right? That's what I was thinking. Like I warned Mark, I think, that it was going to look terrible. And I was thinking that, that I was thinking in terms of early DV cameras and the image, you know, capture quality. Well, that's what I was wondering um, if maybe that's what it was. It's, it's, it's maybe partly that. It's not as terrible in that respect as I remembered because the really terrible cameras were about four years earlier. Like DV films shot in 2002 mm-hmm. are almost unwatchable. This one's bad. You can tell it's from that era, but it's not that bad. It's more the compositions are mostly 
kind of awkward and terrible. But I was thinking of my father because my father's not a cinephile at all. So I was like, if I were watching this with my dad and I were saying like, oh my God, the compositions are so bad. My dad would pick up the remote and pause it and go, explain to me why that's bad. Because that's just the kind of guy he is. And I was realizing I would have trouble articulating what it is because I don't really have the technical knowledge. Like my assumption is that it's some combination of it's a or it's a poor combination of lens choice and camera placement is my is my guess but i don't i couldn't say that with any confidence so what i did was i looked up i was curious like who was the dp on this movie so i looked it up and it was a guy named ian s takahashi um so i checked to see what he had done this was the first film he was ever the cinematographer for um he had had almost no credits of any kind prior to this so he does have a lot of, he's still working to this day. And I was going through and I was like, wow, he has a lot of really impressive credits. He worked on Under the Silver Lake. He worked on Us. He worked on The ne- the Neon Demon. You need a first gig. <laughs> but then I looked closer and I was like, he was not the DP on any of those films. Oh, okay. So I looked to see what he actually did. His credit for Under the Silver Lake is Underwater DP. Oh. <laughs> His credit for Us is Underwater DP. His credit for the Neon Demon is camera operator, <laughs> camera operator underwater. No way. Yes. So, and I don't know if you guys noticed this about Sleeping Dogs Lie. The whole movie takes place underwater? <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of underwater action. No, it is not. To my knowledge, at least. Man, this would have looked I, great underwater. <laughs> I would go so far as to say none at all. So... <laughs> I'm I'm happy that he has carved out a niche for himself, and I'm sure he's very good at his job, but I think this is a case of a director who did not know what he was doing, making the mistake of hiring a cinematographer who also did not know what he was doing, and that is reflected in what you see on screen. <laughs> so may, his main qualification since then is like he must own like a wetsuit and an oxygen tank. <laughs> I would imagine. And, uh, <laughs> Somebody is going to alert him to this podcast episode. He's going to be, this is the most anybody has ever talked about. <laughs> uh, we got to get him on. We got to get him on the show. But so it is, it is a terrible looking film. And it also has, I would submit, one of the worst musical scores of any film I've ever seen. It's really, really overbearing and awful. Made for TV. It's a lot of accordion. And it really made me think it sounded like this could be public domain music or something that yeah. he just did, yeah, that he was able sure. to get the rights for free sound or something. And I was curious about that too cuz I did see that there was a composer credit on this which is uh Gerald Brunskill and uh-huh. on Wikipedia if you click on his name from the Sleeping Dogs Lie Wikipedia page it takes you to Gerald Brunskill Irish politician who died in 1918 <laughs> which I don't think is the same guy. Uh, I am impressed by the amount of research we all did through this movie. I'll say that I did none. So good job, guys. It turns out there is a different Gerald Brunskill, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try. You know, who knows what the deal was with the music on this movie? But yeah, you're you're totally right that between that and the the fades between scenes and the establishing shots, like when we were watching this, Seth said that it felt like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And, I kept waiting for the music to come in. Yeah. And it is a combination of him 
kind of being on like Kevin Smith's technical skill level, as well as just the way it looked. Because like you said, there's this scene early on in a dog park, I think, that I honestly was thinking, is this shot in front of a green screen? Yeah. I mean, that's the camera. <laughs> and I'm thinking it's just because there's no depth of field at all. And, and there's no water. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, I think that w- some people might dismiss this movie out of hand, like you said, starting out watching it because it looks like that. And I honestly, I have to, so I've gone back and forth on the ratings or the rating my rating for this film for those of you listeners who don't know i stupidly rate everything on a one to hundred scale so the first time i saw this at sundance i gave it 69 yuck 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 um out of 100 <laughs> which is like three and a half letterbox stars and then i upgraded it the second time to 72 which is four stars and now i think i'm bringing it back down because i can't I think the second time I was like, eh, it's technically awful, but that's not that important. And this time I was like, eh, it really kind of gets in the way more than I would like. See, I go back and forth. Yeah, as like a glutton for weird factor or whatever you want to call it in a movie. Mm -hmm. I can't tell. Yeah, I try and imagine like the bigger budget, well-made Hollywood version. I don't know which one. I I think like it's just made even more unsettling and strange. Uh, by the fact that it feels like a made-for-TV movie that like has this content in it that you would never imagine to be in this setting, right? Yeah, my friend Theo made that argument at the time, as I recall. He was like, this movie looks terrible, and that works in its favor to some, to some degree. Um, and it also, uh, it's not a technical thing, but I think similarly, the I think... Uh, Melinda Page Hamilton's performance in this film is incredible. And I also think her casting was extremely savvy in that she is about as like stereotypically girl next door as you could possibly imagine. Like if you put like Aubrey Plaza in this role, it would be a whole different movie because Aubrey Plaza is somebody where you would not be that surprised <laughs> necessarily. Now, I mean, that's not a reflection on the actual Aubrey Plaza. I'm just saying the persona that she has, her screen persona, is somebody who is, you know, somewhat dangerous and offbeat and willing to do unconventional yeah, and possibly shit. disgusting. Yeah. Um, and that's not this, this performance is not that at all. It's more like if Meg Ryan were the star of this movie kind of thing. And I think that's interesting that you could see this as kind of a case study of how much do the formal elements matter and you know what you can pull off alone with something that looks like this but with having really good actors and a director who at least seems to know how to work with the actors right. uh, to establish that tone even if he can't really do that and i am curious just while we're on this topic are there uh, any other either directors or movies just in particular you can think of that you love that overcome that where you're always like, God, this just, this just not, it either looks terrible or it's so undistinguished, yet everything else is so good. I know there are. I'm not, I'm having trouble thinking of examples off the top of my head. Would you put uh, Hong Sang Soo in that category just for kind of losing interest? <laughs> yes. Recent Hong Sang Soo, I think, is visually kind of terrible. Um, that he did not start out that way. If you go back and look at his earliest films, he used to be much more sort of formally um, impressive. And then at some point he, he doesn't, he doesn't care now. He's just, 
that that became of no interest to him. And he's much more just like, let's get it shot as quickly as possible and focus on the script and the performances to the exclusion of everything else. So yes, that's a good example. And it means his recent films are like, they live and die on the quality of his idea. And uh, I can't even really say the script because they're only sort of semi-written semi improv he's kind of making them up day by day as he goes along and handing them lines on the day of shooting and so yeah it's it's mostly his idea the conception or although his the film of his that i love this year which is called in water does have a fascinating formal conceit in that the entire film is shot out of focus deliberately oh well good to know it's deliberate then yes okay <laughs> like, like it's, it's right. wi- wildly out of focus <laughs> it's it's the kind of thing where it couldn't be an error it's, right it's, um so that i actually thought worked really well and i was excited to see him get interested in sorry we're turning this into a whole hong sang su podcast but sure uh, um but th- that is that is a good example of uh th- and there are others i'm sure if i went and looked at my favorite films i would find um, other things that are formally kind of wretched, um, and I just didn't care because the the script and the acting and so forth is strong enough to overcome that. But I guess we've pretty well covered what uh, the shortcoming, the major shortcoming, is for this movie. Right. And maybe there's more uh, that you think. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what works. I guess. Um, do you remember specifically what made your rating increase the first time that you watched this? No, and I I'm just gonna guess that I decided that the the shittiness of the visuals and so forth was not as important. Um, what I love about the film, which I guess we kind of we kind of glanced over back at the beginning, um, is basically just the idea that it takes this theoretically outrageous idea. So that's, I mean, if I told you, if you have any idea who Bobcat Goldthwait is, or especially was, um, if you knew his persona back in the 80s, and then I said, and if you had seen Shakes the Clown, which from all I can tell is everything I have heard about it is like wildly offensive in every possible way. And then I said, Bobcat Goldthwait has written and directed a movie about a woman who blew a dog. Like whatever movie you would imagine that to be, this is not that at all. It's, it, it actually... It starts from that place and then it takes that idea seriously as if it were something that had actually happened in somebody's actual life and watches the the fallout from that. Now, it has to get itself into some contrived places to do that. So she's got the drug-addicted brother who is hiding in the attic and overhears the conversation and then reveals it to her parents and so on and so forth. And that stuff is sort of black comedy. but. I don't know that I would describe this film as a comedy overall. It it really gets very dark at times. And it has one moment in particular that like, I'm, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Every time it happens, I'm like, Ugh. Um, where after she tells him that she had done this and he has a terrible reaction and then she follows him out to another part of the house and asks him to hold her, which he cannot do. And then she tries to kiss him and he won't kiss her back. And then she just flatly says, I wish I were dead and walks out of the frame. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this is not fun at all. I thought this movie was going to be hilarious and it has become like heart ripping instead. And I was not prepared for that. And, and it, it doesn't stay in that mode all the time. I think no. it would be amazing if it did. <laughs> yeah. But it keeps going back there. And so, like, at, a, at the point where you think, like, oh, maybe it's been resolved when she and her boyfriend 
kind of get past it and get back together. And then he fucks it up again by suddenly saying, hey, I want to watch you blow the dog. It's just fucking insane. Oh, and God. yet, I believe yeah. it in the moment. They actually, the, the the guy, I think his name is Bryce Johnson. I forget the actor's name. But, um, and I haven't seen him in a lot of other things, although I looked him up and he was in like Oppenheimer this year in some very small part. But, um, so he's still working. But he actually does, uh, he doesn't have the same uh, chops that uh, Hamilton does, but he does a very good job. And he actually sells that moment of him having swung all the way from this is revolting to me and I can't even look at you too. Now I'd like to watch you do it. Although even that is in part a way of like asserting dominance over her in a strange sort of way. I, I don't know. This whole thing is so emotionally fucked up that it's really, it's more than the movie can kind of handle in some respects, which is what I admire about it. Yeah, I was getting nervous when he brought up the idea of her doing that to the dog again, that this was going to be like a Chasing Amy twist where he was like, this is how we're going to fix things. Gotta do it. We're all going to blow the dog. And uh, luckily it it doesn't go there. (laughs) But you're so right, especially that scene where she she does reveal this, which she doesn't have to. She just kind of keeps trying to convince herself that she should be open and honest about everything. And that moment that you pointed out is definitely devastating and i think the way the whole scene unfolds with you know the way she immediately folds back on it and tries to right. s- laugh about and it and it say i was work. kidding and he just he just like can't believe it yeah it's a very very painful scene yeah the whole everything to do with that aspect of it i think is amazing it's actually i think it's a very good drama and a very so-so black comedy like the black comedy aspects i don't think particularly work a lot of the time. And I also would say Brian Passane has a small part in this movie. And I think he is acting like leagues above everybody else in terms of being funny. He's much fun. He's much funnier. I think, I don't know. Are you familiar with Brian Passane? He's, I'm not sure if you know the guy with the glasses. Yes. Yeah. He's him and the Steve Adji, I think who's also in this. Oh yeah. He's the friend of the meth addict brother. Yeah. yeah, they were both on the Sarah Silverman show together. He's, he's an alt comic. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I did love when he just kind of tries to console her <laughs> and is like, I kissed a dead body once. <laughs> that was great. Uh, just, I, I, think lot, I feel like a lot of his stuff was improvised, so he's bringing over a casserole, and he's like, it moved around some in the truck, but I think it's probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, I did laugh a lot during this. I mean, is that... I laughed a ton. I don't know. I was surprised at the comedy. And again, like, because it's... Having this balance of real moments, like real emotion, I think you are always sort of interrogating yourself too as an audience member of like, now how would I actually uh, react to someone telling me that, that I was, you know, like, (laughs) what would I actually do as much as I am like scoffing at these people maybe? I don't know. Yeah. You're always like keeping, putting yourself in the shoes of various characters and things. And it actually, it works. I I was thinking at one point about uh, one of my favorite films of the last century, The Duke of Burgundy, um, which uses sort of S&M relationships as a, essentially a metaphor for all kinds of other things that could be, you know, I, I, I generally describe that film as like, it's a extreme version of like, what if your spouse wants to watch, you know, bad Hallmark, you know, Christmas movies and you don't, but you're going to do it because yeah. you love her and or him or whatever the case right, may be. Right, it could be anything. And this, mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a similar sort of situation where like blowing a dog is a really extreme version of we all have things that we have done that we would not want 
our loved ones to know about. Um, nobody wants their entire existence to be an open book for everybody. So you can kind of plug your own secret or, you know, shame into that and make it work for you emotionally, or at least I can. Yeah. And I think it works all the better because it's such an like extreme over the top example, especially when we have this, this transition to it being more, even more overtly dramatic in the last act that if there's a, something that keeps it from getting kind of saccharine, it's remembering that, oh yeah, what is the, what is the thing again that they were talking about that drove this wedge into everything? And, uh, that kind of juxtaposition definitely always is something that works for me better than the more conventional approach. But he also gets like some more grounded stuff into it too. Like one thing that I'd completely forgotten about, which I always have liked is that uh, her second boyfriend, the guy she eventually ends up with, I think his name is Ed. Um, they finally start making out and they're going to have sex. And she like pulls open his shirt and starts kissing his belly. And he's very self-conscious about it and says, don't do that. I'm fat. And like, that's a, like, I believe that's probably something that's right out of Goldthwait's own life would be my guess. Um, it just, it feels very honest. I, and, and it's, it's a, it's the same sort of emotional tenor, but completely grounded in reality rather than being like blown up into this, you know, uh, outrageous thing that the film takes off from. So it's got both elements working sort of simultaneously all the time. I think that's a great example of like one of many moments in this where it like, in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it it's wild that it takes um, a breath to do something like that. And like that doesn't necessarily like feed into the greater thesis or the big crazy, um, you know, joke at the center of the movie at all. Like, but it, it, it time and time again, there's these little sweet moments like that, which is, is just kind of impressive. Yeah, I thought the same thing about um, one that really caught me off guard was when a uh, the mother dies from a, a brain aneurysm later on in the movie. I was just about to mention that, yeah. And, uh, and maybe this this is actually what I first thought you might have been referring to when you were talking about just a particular uh, like line or detail. But when she finally comes to see her dad and the food is still out on the table and he explains that it, it happened like when we were about to sit down and I can't put the food away. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a real dark, that's dark, you know, it's heavy. And there's also, I actually, eh, I, I, I don't know, I'm of two minds about the letter that she gets from her mother at the end. Um, it feels a little easy in some ways. And I think there is, it's never stated directly, but her, her anguish when she hears that her mother has died. Now, anybody would be anguished with their mother dying, but she has a reaction that to me is not just my mother is dead, but is also my mother is dead and she died still thinking I was this horrible person and now we can never fix that. And the letter at the end kind of lets the her and the audience kind of off the hook for that horror. And I don't know that I'm mad about that necessarily. Like I, I'm not insisting that she be made to suffer with that that understanding for the rest of her life. But at the same time, for the brief time that I think it's going to do that, I'm kind of goggle-eyed again. So I'm, I'm impressed that it, that it even raised that as a possibility. I think it's a little neat, but I think it does just kind of take the conceit, the central conceit of the movie, like very seriously in like a suddenly very realistic way that like the mom, you know, your mom might have to like write a whole letter at a certain point about like 
addressing and finally like putting to rest the fact that you sucked a dog's cock. Yeah, who can relate to that? It, 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 it might be, it, it would, and it, and it probably, I mean, it did read like a, a, a letter from a mom, you know, in a very realistic way of that it doesn't get like super overblown and on a very like poetic or anything. It is just like, you know, we all have things and I understand that. And, you know, uh, I kind of loved the letter actually. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm going to get a little more on the side of it seeming like reaching a little too hard for the closure or, you know, all all wounds being healed by the end of the movie. Uh, and I don't think that the transition is a little bit rocky into the really dramatic stuff. And maybe that just has to do also with him not having like this, the most confident filmmaking chops too. Uh, but in spirit, I still really like that. And the real crux of that, I think, is her deciding to not tell her, to let her dad go the rest of his life thinking that he was the the only man that she ever had sex with. When we find out earlier in the movie, she actually had sex with Roy Orbison, uh, which I think is very funny. And especially that we had this kind of sitcom situation, potentially when they first come over, you know, to meet the meth-addicted brother and the hyper-conservative religious parents and then we pretty quickly get her mom kind of casually admitting to this tryst with Elvis and Roy Orbison in a way that, I don't know, didn't seem overly jokey to me. And it didn't end up getting something that came back in an obvious way. Like, I figured there was going to be some blow up at some point. And she would be like, well, you fucked Roy Orbison. And, you know, and then the dad would freak out. Instead, it's it's kind of almost the point of the movie. That, that's another good example, by the way, of the uh, the filmmaking issues, because when I was watching it, again, I told you like early on, I was like, oh, these guys are going to think this movie is terrible. The first part where I was just like, OK, this is starting to settle into a groove was that conversation with the with I think her name is Amy, Amy and her mother, um, where she's telling her confessing about the Elvis Presley and the Roy Orbison thing. And meanwhile, um, also a pretty good scene between uh, the boyfriend and her father. And he's. Uh, confessing that he hates his job and he's chopping wood angrily and just being bitter about things. And both of those scenes are very well scripted and acted. And the way that they're cut back and forth is totally inept. Like it, it, it keeps putting the brakes on them, each one of them individually, just as they're starting to get rolling and, and it kicks the legs out from under them again and again and again. Um, and he really should have just let each one of them kind of play on its own or at least done less of the intercutting than he did, but yeah, that that's always going to be a thing to, to hold this movie back, I guess. But the cast is so good. You mentioned Melinda page Hamilton. And, uh, I thought that, uh, Jack Plotnick as the brother was also very yeah. funny. Yeah. Dougie, uh, which is <laughs> playing this stupid little keyboard and yeah. doing math and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And this is that in particular could really be a stock role of the fuck up jealous you know, drug addicted brother. And it kind of is that, but he both makes it more like credible and just flat out like funny. Yeah. I don't, I, there's nobody, I don't think in the movie who's in any way bad. Um, it's just a, a question of, I think Melinda Page Hamilton is operating on a higher level. It's mostly just because her character is the most, she's got, she's the most human and the least sort of cartoonish of the, of the whole group. The parents are both sort of stock characters and the brother's a stock character and so forth. So they're all doing good work within these very narrow confines. Um, she actually has to take this insane 
situation and make it credible and does an amazing job. I've, I've been kind of sad that she, she never really, she has continued to work. She was on the show, Mrs. America a few years back. She had a little role in that, but, um, but I have not seen much of her since this film. And I think that's kind of a shame. Yeah. Her filmography was surprisingly small looking through it. And then I guess a lot of it is on TV. I guess she had a really small role in Mad Men too. So, yeah. And actually that kind of goes for a lot of the actors in, in this movie who I thought were really good. It just seemed like yeah, I mean, none really had big standout film roles after this. Not on film. The, 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 the dad was the police chief on Dexter for many years, if you watched Dexter. I mean, give it to a less, yeah, let, let other actors try and navigate some of these scenes like, and see how they do. I think it is like, they are kind of like unprecedented scenes and stuff as far as like, not going too far into it being just sure Freddie got right. fingered or something and uh, not going just full on like dramatic and losing the fact that it is absurdist in some level. I don't know. Yeah. It is a weird, weird tightrope thing. Yeah. But I mean, my, the, you know, don't get me started on Freddie, but it's, it's not trying to shock, you primarily that's like that's it had it has a shocking inciting incident but it's not that's not the goal of the movie is to gross you out or make you uncomfortable i mean well to make you uncomfortable but emotionally uncomfortable not like i'm gonna throw up uncomfortable even though there is a character who actually says i'm gonna throw up at one point having heard about what she did but uh, (laughs) because it establishes that so well in the beginning it just gets it out of the way and it's very quick they don't make it this whole like sequence of events with like I don't know I don't know because I don't know I th- I think Bob has some empathy for oh absolutely this yeah, character yeah. for real like some real empathy for this and does is on her side of it being just we do crazy things sometimes we just do crazy things especially when we're young you know uh, yeah he's fully on the side of that yeah and you make a good point earlier that I hadn't. I'm embarrassed to say I'd not really thought about, which is that the film comes to this conclusion that I kind of agree with ultimately that like there are some things you don't need to be hundred percent honest about everything with everyone or anyone in your life. There are some things that are just yours and you can hang on to them. And it's not, it's not always beneficial to a relationship to be constantly truthful all the time. I do believe that's true. At the same time, mm-hmm. your point is well taken that maybe just fucking relax about something that happened, you know, however many years yeah. earlier, it, well, she can't be that old. So it was probably like 12 years earlier or whatever, but, um, you know, something that happened one time that she clearly regrets and that however, you know, disgusting you and I may find it, it's not, you know, her, uh, her second boyfriend, Ed, at one point asks her, he doesn't know what she did, but he asks her like, did you intend to hurt anybody? And she says, no. And he says, well, then I think you just made a mistake. And that's actually a really healthy way to look at it right. that nobody else in the film seems able to wrap their head around for some reason. Right. It seems like it's more what's more important is like him trying to get these characters like, okay, if you're are you just it's fine like to have someone reveal this to you. It's just you you should be really prepared if you do turn to someone and ask them like, what is the craziest yeah. thing you've ever done? You better, and if you actually do love them, you better be prepared to like let that in because it could be anything. <laughs> That's just always you know? anytime anybody ever says, "Yeah," or don't do ask. You really want to know? <laughs> you know? Like, there, nobody has ever answered no to that question in the history of time. I don't think, but that is the deal. Yeah. Some, sometimes you shouldn't really want to know. Yeah, and it's interesting that we spend so like 
what feels to me like most of the film uh, with this first boyfriend, and they really did seem to me like they were a good match, like they were mm-hmm. a good couple. And they, it's actually just this one thing that ends up making it unsalvageable, which of course, you know, is his fault. But I do also like that we don't hear a lot of movies, you know, that basically come out and say, it's not the most important thing to be honest. And uh, just interesting that she still, that she just kind of ends up with this other guy and we never even revisit with that boyfriend. There's no like making up or acceptance or anything. The lesson isn't him getting over it. It's her just deciding not to go there. Yeah, no, she just moves on. Yeah, I was I was waiting for him to be like an Adam Sandler movie style, like villain or something by the end. He like comes back and he's going to do something to like ruin the day or something. But he's not. He's just is like, he's like, boyfriend who just didn't accept it and they broke up and they moved on and he's not in the movie like which you would i was just waiting for him to like reappear in the third act for some reason and like be like he's the shitty boyfriend just to illuminate how good the new boyfriend is but they don't do that i thought that was kind of impressive well they do it a little bit in that they have her go pick up her stuff at his at their former where she she had moved out of the apartment so that's the last time i think that's the last time we see him is when she goes and and gets her couch or whatever and he's just kind of a sullen asshole about it like he doesn't want to help carry the couch and he's just you know it just kind of confirms that you know Brian Persane actually says, like, is she with that? Is she serious about that guy? Because he seems like a cock to me. <laughs> and, and Brian Persane was kind of right, honestly. In the end, yeah. So the very end, uh, we get the um, kind of the the moral is wrapped up with her deciding to let the new boyfriend think that the real secret was that she got an abortion. And that he he looks right at her and says, you know, for being honest, I love you even more. And... <laughs> That's. I feel like that would have been a a great ending, and I could have done without the kind of closing voiceover right. where she kind of sums up the message of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I think I would have liked it a little more too if it would have ended like right before that that happened without her, you know, just coming out and saying, you know, it's important to lie. Right. No, I don't need that. I don't mind the the final joke about like, no, I didn't have a dog, just cats. That's cute enough. I don't. I don't mind that so right. much. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't. You could do without the voiceover. I, I assume he brings it back because it seems structurally sound to do that. There was a voiceover at the beginning, and then there's no voiceover through most of the film, so you're supposed to bring it back at the end. Uh, is something he may have read in a screenwriting guide or something like that. But right. <laughs> it's, it's it's not strictly necessary now. But I think it does. It keeps we keep coming back to that though, being sort of both what we like and is kind of frustrating because I think it is more complicated than what the voiceover sums up, right? It's not always, sometimes, yeah. I think letting that be um, might've been better. No, like I said earlier, it's, I, I, I think the film is tapping into an emotional range that it's not entirely itself prepared to handle. (laughs) So that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it keeps kind of like, going into places and then retreating kind of because it's like, Oh, it's getting a little raw here. Maybe we should, (laughs) I'm I'm worried that the comedy part is leaking away and it is, he's not wrong. So like he keeps pulling back before it turns into a really weird fucking like Ingmar Bergman movie instead of what he actually set out to make, which is a dark comedy. Um, But that's why I said, I I don't really know that I would, if somebody asked me to describe it, I don't know that I would call it a comedy. Um, maybe that's just because what 
what registers most strongly with me and what I always take away from it is not the funny parts, but the like brutally serious parts. Do you think that that's the main difference between this and the other movies you have seen by him? Maybe that's, it's been too long for you to totally remember, but it's, it seems like this is the only one that you think is successful on this kind of level. Certainly world's greatest dad is trying to do something very similar. Um, I was very mixed on that film. I don't remember. I would have to go back and reread whatever I am pretty sure I reviewed it. I don't remember why I felt like it didn't work. It might have been Robin Williams because I tend to find that Robin Williams does not work for me in any mode other than being outrageously funny when he tries to be serious. Um, I tend to not be impressed. But um, so it might have been that. Or there might have been something else. I would have to go back and check. But I know that it's 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 definitely in a similar vein. Um, again, I have not seen Shakes the Clown, so I could not say whether Shakes the Clown is trying to do. I never got the impression from anyone that it had anything that ambitious in mind. It really felt like it was trying to be, as it bills itself, the Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something more going on there. And then I'm, I'm trying to remember, are there any films of his that we're forgetting apart from Willow Creek? Um, God bless America was oh, right. one, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was another, that was much more caustic in, uh, it's not really, it's, that was an angry movie to, I think it's detriment to a large degree. Although I sort I liked aspects of it. It was, I was, that was another one I was pretty mixed on. Um, but it was, it was doing interesting things. I think that starred Bill Murray's brother, as I recall, Joel Murray, I think. Oh, that sounds I didn't realize there was a family connection yeah. um, there. But that's basically like two people going on a, a murder spree, killing like reality TV stars and things that piss off. Yes, uh, it's, it's basically people from that generation. And it's 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 very didactic in ways that are annoying. But if you are of a like if you if you feel similarly about his targets as he does there is also something cathartic about seeing a bunch of those people get blown away so um but that's i wouldn't call that in the same i would say world's greatest dad and sleeping dogs lie are the two that are most similar um and just one of them is just better at it than the other one i think and i think just i it really may be just the difference between um melinda page hamilton's performance in this film versus having a big star who's very self-conscious about what he's doing, like Robin Williams at the center of your movie. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's a great way of summing up how I feel about the movie. At, at certain points, I am just like amazed that it's possibly getting to the heights that it's getting to. Because it, you're just so, it's so unassuming. And I mean, if anything, you're just either expecting this to somehow be just like borderline like a Hallmark movie at one point, or like it could have just gotten gotten some yucks from some stoners with like enough like blowing a dog jokes like i I thought it was going to go that way basically at a certain point and uh yeah you are just kind of impressed that someone could like stop giggling for five seconds and actually sit down and write this thing and be very serious about the idea um which i think that is kind of great because yeah you could really milk this just just purely milk this kind of uh like hook which it is a hook it's like a great hook like it immediately gets everybody in the room thinking and looking and like you can tell it like 
it feels like it was born out of maybe one of his stand-up routines or something, you know, just like a quick joke that he made. And it is another thing to make a movie out of it. I think I'm impressed by that. Yeah, even if it's not always successful, it's still kind of thrilling to see it try to the extent that it does, I think. And the fact that John Waters, I, I heard is a big fan of this film and he picked it as his annual selection for the Maryland Film Festival in 2007. Oh, that follows. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's almost misleading because the movie doesn't, John Waters would never make a movie that would end up like this. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, it's, he would have ran <laughs> with that. You mean you didn't see her do it? <laughs> What's the point? Yeah, he would make something really unwatchable, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it, it, it deserves to be to be more well-known and to be reevaluated to the extent that it's been kind of overlooked. Um, where did you finally end up then, Mike? Did this go back down to the three-and-a-half-star 67? Are we out of four-star territory here? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to have to. Do you judge her harshly? <laughs> I, I just, I, I ultimately, it was, I had so much, I spent so much of the movie last night wincing at things that were just borderline inept, um, that I can't really consider it a, even a near great film, even though it is doing certain things that I find amazing. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think I'm going to go back to my original uh, rating, which was 69, ah. um, which will, you know, so now, now, now the dog is going down on her as well, apparently. Oh, yes, <laughs> it is. No, I mean, I could also understand that with this viewing too, though, this could be a nightmare. Like it was one thing to like, just watch it with Mark for the podcast. It would be another thing to like, all right, uh, I'm going to go and take this and watch this with my girlfriend. And, uh, uh, we'll see. Right. Or, or like, yeah, like, <laughs> Like, I'm going to pitch this to some guys who have a podcast. I could imagine being a little, like, anxious. Like, whoa, what do they think of me or something? <laughs> or, like, I don't know. Yeah, that I could mean, kind of mess up the actual viewing of it. No, as I said, my only concern was that you guys were going to go, like, this movie is inept. What were you thinking? <laughs> so I was, I was relieved that that was not actually the case. But I would not, I probably wouldn't have thought to bring this up for your concept on my own. It was on a list of possible titles that you guys sent to me and i was like oh that one that's perfect because i haven't seen that film in a million years i didn't know he had dog sucker movies i had i (laughs) I had no idea so how did how did you come upon it mark actually it was because of you um oh okay uh, i believe that i'm not sure how i stumbled upon the letterbox page for it but you were the only person that i followed who actually had a rating for it and it was higher than almost anyone else's on the page too. So I'm pretty sure I threw it in my watch list there. And then at one point it occurred to me, this sounds like something that could fit the theme of our podcast. <laughs> it do- Although it's ironically, I find that the most, like, the part of the film that in theory would be unwatchable is great. And there are other aspects that do in fact make it nearly unwatchable, which are all the terrible directing and cinematography. Oh yeah. Good point. Yeah. I mean, even just some moments with like the the cringy aspect of just putting yourself in the shoes of just going with your girlfriend to meet her parents and they suck. And, you know, it's like, right. That is, I don't know, for some reason that that fills me with just PTSD, (laughs) like some bad meet the parent moments. Well, a lot of the movies that we have to uh, watch for this do feel like assignments. And Mark and Seth and I also watched Irreversible in the same room together when you were on the podcast last time. Oh, and right. We, we had a pretty solid uh, Thursday night or whatever it was <laughs> with this one. Uh, and, you know, we actually laughed and 
We didn't talk about Doug that much. Uh, I loved the the, the meth addict brother character. There was a lot of uh, <laughs> very pro Doug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, there's no limit to what this keyboard does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. There's a great throwaway joke after after that scene where he's he's up all night uh, playing with his stupid sampler keyboard thing, and when uh, Amy comes in to wake John up, he complains that he kept him up all night with his his keyboard noises, and then he goes, "He's got chops though." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh joke. God! <laughs> oh well. And in case anyone is worried, the end credits do specify <clears throat> that no animal was harmed or pleasured in the making of this movie. <laughs> ding ding! So that already we've watched lots of movies that have had either real or simulated animal cruelty on this podcast, and this is it not one neither. of them. Yeah. So, <sighs> all right. Well, moving off the topic then uh, <laughs> of Sleeping Dogs Lie, let's talk about Sleeping Dogs Lie too. Yeah, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, I, I wanted to actually. I didn't even get a chance to run this uh, by Seth yet, but Oof. I was thinking about doing a debuting a little questionnaire uh, that's just kind of off the cuff that of just some general questions uh, that I could ask you, not to put you on the spot or anything. No, I'm game. Mike, you don't have to do this. You weren't prepared. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> we can leave right now. I, I can't imagine any quite Well, I, don't ask me about any animals I may have blown in the past. But other than that. What's the yeah, grossest it, thing you've ever We won't get got? that personal. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so I'm sure a lot of your readers will know the answer to this question in particular. But just for posterity, Mike D'Angelo, what is your favorite film? Only Angels Have Wings. Uh, 1939, directed by Howard Hawks. All right, easy uh, enough. Yeah. Is that, was that always the case? Like, was that a first time you watched it kind of thing, or was it over the years that you um, realized it? I No, I think I knew. I, I saw that one, I want to say, in the mid-'90s originally, um, by which time I had seen quite a lot of films already, and I think it was a case of, like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen kind of a reaction. Um and then I've just kind of stuck firmly with that. I mean, you know, your favorite movie is to some extent, uh, you know, I wouldn't say arbitrary. That's not right. But it's, you know, I could substitute it with any number of other films from my like satin sound list. And I wouldn't feel bad about any of those being named. But there's a moment in time for you. Yeah. Kinda. There's for some reason, I just kind of settled on that one and nothing has ever dislodged it so far. Although I thought Under the Skin was going to for a while. That's the, oh. one, that's, the one, that's the one contemporary film where like halfway through it, I was like, this might be my favorite. This might be the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's so awesome. And then it, and, and then it wasn't. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I was yeah. feeling that way for like a solid hour. And if it had continued in the same vein for the next hour, it probably would have gotten there. But. Wow. That must be a rare feeling, I would imagine, over the last several years to be to for somebody to get that close, even for that long. I felt that way a little, uh, I don't think as strongly, but I was, I was very, very excited about tree of life up to a point, And then I got less excited. I still really like that film, but it does boast that you do get that feeling yeah. with that movie. It's like, Oh, but no, I don't yeah. know. I have the same thing. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh man. All right. Well then, uh, question number two is, can you think of an instant where you most significantly changed your opinion on a movie. Um, which direction do you want? Uh, either way. Okay. Um, well, I'll give you one of each. Okay. Um, so the, the, I think, 
Well, there are several. Um, the most notable one in my mind, although I had another instance really very recently, which was um, Secret Ceremony, Joseph Losey's Secret Ceremony, which I loved. The first time I saw it, gave it 80. And this time I think I went down to like 44 or something. I just did a total wow. nosedive. And I don't really, it was one of those situations where as I was watching it this time, I was like, why did I like this? I have no recollection of what impressed me about it, even though I usually like Joseph Losey. Um, and I, I, when that happens, I worry because I saw it originally on the big screen at Lincoln Center. And this time I watched it on my TV set. And I'm like, is that the problem? Is, is, did it work on the big screen? I don't think so, but I always, I always worry about that. That, that happened to me to a lesser degree with Yugetsu, the Mizuguchi film, um, which I used to love when I had seen, when I saw it on the big screen. And then the most recent time when I watched it on Blu-ray, I still liked it, but just suddenly started having dramatic issues with it. And I was like, maybe I only had dramatic issues because I'm not being overwhelmed by it, you know, on a big screen. So anyway, the one that I was actually thinking of was not Secret Ceremony, but uh, Leaving Las Vegas. That was a film that I adored in 1995, thought it was amazing, it was on my top 10 list that year. And then I saw a bunch of other Mike Figgis movies that got worse and worse and uh, I started to really hate Mike Vegas. <laughs> and then at some point, uh, probably 12 or so years ago, I went back and rewatched Leaving Las Vegas. And I was like, oh, this is the same shitty movie he always makes. It just has better actors in it. That's the only difference. That's how I felt when I saw that movie. I felt like I, ha I would, it would have to be in 1995, but it would, it would rip. It would rip in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, you know, I was very, you know, at that time, Nicolas Cage was my favorite actor. Um, he's still one of my favorite actors, but I, I think if you had asked me in 1995, name your favorite actor, my answer would have been without hesitation, Nicolas Cage. Um, and, and had that had been the case for, I don't know, since like Moonstruck or so. So for a good Fair. eight years. Yeah. And so then so this was the culmination of all of that. It was the role he had, was born to play. I still think he's amazing in it. I'm glad he won the Oscar. Um, but and, I, and Elizabeth Shue is great in it. Everything else, it's just the filmmaking itself that I can't mm -hmm. stand. No, yeah. So that so that was a huge nosedive. And then um, in the other direction, there are several um, Iranian movies that I did not care for the first time and then went back and revisited. And I don't understand what my negative reaction was the first time. Uh, Taste of Cherry was a film that I was kind of eh. In when I saw it at New York Film Festival in 97. Now I think that film is amazing. I don't know what my problem was. Um, and then uh, Panahi's The Circle from 2000 is another one where I, I really disliked that movie at Toronto that year and then revisited it a few years ago and was like, this is really good. I don't know. <laughs> it's, those are always disconcerting. I mean, it's why I tend to go back and rewatch things all the time because I don't trust that I got it right the first time or that I haven't changed enough as a person that I'm interested in different things now and might appreciate things that I didn't appreciate before. But when it's that dramatic, I'm always like, what was wrong with me? <laughs> I don't, um, especially because in a lot of cases, like it's one thing if it's like, well, I saw this movie when I was 16 and I wasn't ready like that. I get that's a common place. Everybody goes through that, I would say. But these are cases where in a lot of cases, the first time I saw the movie, I was like, you know, 30. <laughs> right. And then I come back to it years later and was like, I was old enough and my taste was already 
sufficiently evolved that I should have appreciated all the things that I'm appreciating now. I don't know. I find it worrisome, but at the same time, I find it kind of hopeful. Sure. We are ever changing. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. So then, and this is, I guess, maybe a little bit related. My next question is, can you think of perhaps your most unpopular opinion uh, or just one of them? Because I know there's probably a lot to choose from. <laughs> no, I mean, but, uh, I, I'm, la- I'm laughing because the answer to this is obvious to anyone who pays any attention to my writing on a regular basis. The, like children of men, people hate my opinion of the long takes mm. in children of men, which I am not fond of. And I have made lengthy, um, tortured arguments about why those shots uh, damage the film by calling attention to their own virtuosity. Nobody agrees with me about that. It's it's <laughs> I've that was the probably the most angry comments I've ever gotten for anything I wrote for the <laughs> club. And people still bring it up. Mm-hmm. It's been however many years it's been since I wrote that piece. It was probably in like 2009 or so that I wrote it. Um, still comes up all the time. Um, I have not changed my mind. It's, I, I really, I continue to be somebody who for the most part thinks there is not usually a good reason to kill yourself trying to get something really complicated down in a single shot. Occasionally, it's interesting to me. I never want to see an entire film shot that way. Every one of those, I think, does not work. Even Russian Ark, which comes closest. But um, yeah, that's not a popular opinion. Did you guys ever see the behind the scenes of how they got the the long car shot, like with the the specific yeah. like camera mechanism and how all the actors had to like lay down and roll over? And it it's incredibly impressive. It's like an acrobatic. Yeah, like uh, feet, but yeah, it does kind of make you wonder, like, how did they, what you see in the movie is just that they're in a car for a really long time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, but, but my point is when I'm watching that, I'm very well, I don't know how they're doing it, but I'm, I'm very, and maybe this is just me. I'm very conscious of the fact that what I'm seeing is not theoretically possible. Like if the, assuming that the car were intact, the camera is going places that the camera could not possibly go. And so now I'm not involved in what's actually happening in the scene. I'm sitting there thinking, how did they accomplish this? And then I look at the behind the scenes footage and I go, oh, that's very uh, ingenious. The, how they, But it pulled me right out of the movie for several sustained minutes of something that's supposed to be, you know, building to, and I guess that's what it does for other people. Every, other people argue that when there's no cut, it feels more real to them. I have exactly the opposite reaction to that. I think the longer the, the take goes on showily without a cut, the more I'm thinking about everyone working behind the scenes and the less I'm thinking about the characters in the drama. So, and I think that everything that that single take does could be just as easily accomplished with conventional continuity editing, which is usually, if it's done well, invisible. Like there are all kinds of cuts, but you're not even noticing them in the hands of a skilled director like a Spielberg or somebody. He's cutting all the time, but it's all done so smoothly and seamlessly that you're not even really conscious of it. That's the goal, I think. I'm totally with you on that too. And it might be that I sometimes have you in my head over the years uh, from being familiar with all of that argument. Uh, too, when I see these things, but yeah, it's like in real life, we all, you know, walk around technically with a continuous shot, but that's not how our minds actually work. It's not even how your eyes work. Oh yeah, you're right. That's, that's the argument that that's the part of the argument that gets people really 
worked up is that I started talking about like saccades and the fact that your eyes actually jump from point to point. It's much more close to being a cut than to continuous movement. But anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And it's even the the way like even like a video game that has everything from a, uh, you know, a point of view shot can sometimes be kind of weird just because even though we are these heads walking around looking at things, it doesn't feel that way. Like we're still processing things like series of images or imagining ourselves. Yeah, I agree. Editing is what makes movies movies. Yeah, that's that's the that's the heart of the art form in my of the medium, in my opinion. But so I hate to see people trying to remove it from the equation. I don't know. I'm a big idiot. I like being a floating eye thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just, a, a, a lot of people do. I just want to be God. Yeah. I just want to float around. <laughs> I'll let PTA do it for me. It's fine. All right. Well, then to bring this full circle, what would you say is your most unwatchable movie or perhaps just a scene that comes to mind of it was actually hard to watch in the sense of just something I didn't need living in my head. Well, that was the film that we already talked about, which is Irreversible and the rape scene in Irreversible. That's, I think that's probably the most, that's the thing I have to steal myself for every single time that I've watched that film is just like, oh, this is going to be awful. And it always is. Like it never gets any easier to sit through. But I think we talked about that last time. So let me see if I can come up with something other than that. Um my, um, so my weird, or not weird, I guess it's not that weird. Um, I don't have a problem with gore per se. Like you can do anything realistic. You could, you could do it for real actually to a corpse on screen. And I don't care if like, if, if the body is dead, you can tear it to pieces and it will not bother me literally at all. I don't find anything disgusting about that. What bothers me is people suffering. That's what I can't take. Um, so uh, scenes of prolonged torture. Audition. That's a good example. Audition is a film that I think is one of the greatest films ever made. Actually, it's 96 rating for me. Um, almost certainly my favorite horror film. I can't imagine there's one that's rated higher than 96. Um I think that film is brilliant in every way. I have not watched it in quite a few years. I'm not necessarily looking forward to watching it a fourth. I think it would be the fourth time. Um, it's, it, that one's hard for me to get through a lot of it. It's the, I mean, once the piano wire comes out, it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't enjoy that. Like <laughs> there's, there's nothing. That was why uh, on my Patreon, when people request uh, films at some point, not that long ago, make maybe, six, nine months ago, I forget. Um, somebody requested Cannibal Holocaust. And I was like, okay, technically that's eligible because any film that I have not seen is automatically eligible. And I'll do it if people vote for it. But I just want you to know, this is going to be a long essay about how I just don't, I don't enjoy this kind of thing at all. Like, it's just not, I'm not a gorehound. And I have, I have no moral objection to people who are. I understand on some theoretical level, the appeal, but I, I do not enjoy watching people physically or even really emotionally to some extent, but definitely not physical suffering. It's very hard for me to take. So I always have to kind of grip my teeth. And, uh, and also obviously you were just mentioning, uh, actual animal suffering like, uh, Oh, that's, that's probably the worst example is, um, wake and fright. Have you guys done? Wake oh and fright? my God. No, we haven't, but I I know the scene you're talking about is, is unbearable. 
Yeah, that was that. I mean, I forced myself to sit through all of it because I'm anal retentive. If I were the kind of person who was willing to say, I'm just going to skip past this and go to the next scene, I would have done that. Like, I really did not want to sit through it. Um, Unfortunately, I have the kind of brain where I'm just like, nope, I must watch the entire movie or I can't log it. So, So I forced myself to sit through the entire fucking carnage. But I, I would probably choose not to watch that again. I, um, even if I were to watch the film again, I think I would skip past that part. So Mike's a freak. He doesn't enjoy suffering. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't enjoy like, suffering. Yeah, I, 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 I'm amused in hindsight that I tried to characterize that as being weird. So, <laughs> but in the world of I'm movies, re- it's I'm- weird. That's the thing. In the world of movies, it's, yeah. Can you not even, are you not even allowed to kind of avert your eyes? For a second, do you make yourself watch every like kangaroo oh, no. getting? No, no, no. In fact, here's the fun. Here's a funny story for you. It has nothing to do with violence or or suffering or anything like that. But um, the last time that I used the bathroom in the middle of a film was Heather's during the original theatrical release of Heather's, which I believe was in 1990. <laughs> the, film, the, 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 the film is from 89, but I think it, okay. I think it came out where I lived in 1990. And this is true. Um, I had to pee so bad that I was literally, I would have wet my pants if I did not get up. I, I, <laughs> okay. I, I have not had that experience since, but I, I tried to ignore it for like 40 minutes. And eventually I was like, I'm going to wet my pants if I don't get up and go to the bathroom. It was midway through the movie. I got up. I went to the bathroom, took a leak, and I went home. <laughs> I did not go back into the movie. I went home, and then I calculated what time that was. The next day, I went back to the same theater, the same screening. I went to the ticket person and said, listen, I was here yesterday. Here's my ticket stub. I had to get up and leave in the middle of the movie. I didn't tell her why. Um, I need to go back in and watch the movie. So I went back in from slightly before the point where I had left and watched the rest of it the next day. (laughs) But I would not go to the bathroom and then come back and continue the film. See, now that's the kind of thing where you would need to assure people you're not a psychopath. Yes, that actually, I I would not, I would not do that today. Today I would just go, if I actually had to pee that badly, I would go in and watch the rest of the movie. And then at some point down the road, I would go watch the part that I missed. Um, But at the time I was that dogmatic about it that I was just like, I can't continue if I haven't seen the last three minutes. Well, then my, my last question is a very simple one and it is Southland Tales. Good or oh, bad? Oh, come on. <laughs> bad. <laughs> Ter- Tara bad. I believe. I have not seen Southland Tales since I saw it at Cannes on its world premiere. That was the last time. I have not gone near it since. I think I might have watched the uh, music video scene on its own at one point just to see if I liked that. You know what? That made the Scandies. It was one of the Scandies best scene choices. So I watched <laughs> it then. But other than that, I hated that film so much that I have never had the slightest desire to go back and see, even though I know that the cut I saw is not the cut that got released. Like he changed it after can, I'm pretty sure significantly. Um, and yet based on what I saw, I'm like, there's no salvaging this movie. <laughs> there's no way he could turn this into something I would enjoy. It would just be a different version of torture for me. Now, at some point, somebody actually did briefly suggest it for Patreon. And then I pointed out to him, that I had reviewed it from Cannes and he was like, ah, that's good enough. So he withdrew it. But somebody may ask me to watch it again. And I opened that up 
to people. I said, if enough time has passed, if it's been more than 10 years, um, then even if I've reviewed it previously and given it a rating, I'll give it another chance if you want me to. So somebody could request it and force me to try it again. And maybe I would, maybe I would get something more out of it, but man, did I not like that movie at all. At all. I'm not I'm not gonna say anything. I think I think people that uh like it just we should not talk about it too. Like <laughs> I think that's what I've learned over the years. There's no there's no point. It's like, yeah, it's like Republicans and Democrats. It's, there's no point. We had Nathan Rabin on uh to talk about that one, and Seth and Nathan were very pro Southland Tales, and it was it was it was the, a love fest. We were rolling down the hill, giggling, having a good time. Oh, it was the most embattled Mark has ever been on <laughs> on the podcast so far. So <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Surely I, this professional critic is not down. <laughs> Surely, I, I really Seth I, will be I, put in his place." I have nothing against anybody who thinks that film is awesome. I can understand in theory why it's nice of you. Why somebody would enjoy it. I just found it so, so deeply unfunny. It's just like, it just, whatever his sense of humor and mine, there's like no, the Venn diagram is two circles somehow. I don't oh, know. he's not very funny. No. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll give you that. So, so if, if you, if you love Southland Tales, you're, it's not because you're finding it hilarious then. No, no. Oh, okay. Well, that's a relief. Because my sense was that it was trying to be funny and failing miserably. Oh, that was my sense. <laughs> it tries. It definitely tries. It tries to do all sorts of things that it doesn't quite do. Okay. <laughs> so you just have to like things not working. I, I'm I'm trying not to. I'm, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> no, sorry. This was I my, I sprung this on set. This is my revenge for having <laughs> yeah. to sit through the whole episode. <laughs> New rule, you cannot call in reinforcements when uh, you're in the minority on, <laughs> on, a, on a film. I could have done the same with Harmony Kareem because that episode was another person whose films changed their life and it was very beautiful to hear about. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I'm not generally a fan of his, but he has made films that I don't despise, so that's something. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't hate mm. the Julian Donkey Boy. There were elements of that that I did like. Um, Trash Humpers is a film that I hate even more than Southland Tales. Everybody yeah, hates yeah. that yeah. here. We can all agree on that. We okay. can all have a good time agreeing <laughs> on that one. No you, trash uh, humping. You, uh, I swear I'll wrap this up soon, but you you were in a, weren't you in a, a class of some kind with Harmony Korean at one point at NYU? Yeah, he and I were in the, we were in, yeah, we had the same freshman year. Uh, I forget what it was called. It was, it was basically when you, when you, when you start at the dramatic writing program, you, you're, you're taking a basic like intro to dramatic writing class. And, um, and he was in my class. I didn't know him. Like we didn't really, we had a nodding acquaintance, but we didn't like hang out or anything. And he was not there very long. Like he dropped out after the first year um, to make kids because he got discovered by Larry Clark in the park right near NYU. And, um, and so then, but he knows who I am. Like we, we know each other by sight. So like at one point, I went into Kim's video in New York and he happened to be there. And he was actually the one who said, I was looking for something to rent. And he was like, you should get this film, um, Les Amants du Pont Neuf, which I had not heard of at that point. Um, so he was the one who turned me on to that film and Leos Carax. And that was great. Um, and he was also at the, uh, I had an internship at Fine Line Features in 95, I think it was. Yeah, 95. And, um, and so I was, as part of that, I was at the premiere of Basketball Diaries. And because I knew him, 
I ended up talking to him and DiCaprio and Jim Carroll for like an hour about I don't even remember anymore. It's weird. You would think I would remember the substance of that <laughs> the conversation. It wasn't. Talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, I don't. I don't. I don't think I was doing a lot of talking. But you, you would think I would better remember what they were talking about, and I really don't. I just remember being, eh, not even that awesome. Like this is before Titanic, so I knew who DiCaprio was. He had already been Oscar nominated by that point for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, but he was not. Leo, like he is, like he would become, like two years, yeah. two years later. So it was still like, hey, hottie. Yeah, it's really weird. The other, the other thing that I remember from it wasn't that premiere. It was a different premiere. I think it was for a film called Frankie Starlight. Um, but that was also in '95. I was at the premiere party for that one, and I, my most vivid memory of that party was Cameron Diaz was there. This was one year after she did The Mask, so she was already famous, but she was not really that famous yet and she was standing around that party by herself the whole time like nobody was talking to her nobody was paying the slightest attention to her she looked really kind of lonely and bored i remember thinking like oh that's that girl from the mask and she looks like she would rather be anywhere else and nobody gives a shit um it's really strange your whole life could have changed if you had (laughs) gone up and talk to her. This could be, yeah. you wouldn't be anywhere near this podcast right now. I wish Mike would come up and talk to me. Never occurred to me to do so. But, uh, yeah. wow. so anyway, so I know Harmony slightly, but I don't, I don't, I don't hate Harmony or anything. He was a perfectly nice guy to the little extent that I've had interactions with him. He just happens to make films that I don't generally enjoy very much. Well, maybe that conversation that you don't remember like, was where the idea for Trash Humpers came from. And that's what you guys were discussing. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you just started talking and Harmony was nodding. And... He got the idea from Leah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. He, he was, might be in that movie under one of the masks. Who knows? We'll never know. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being generous with your time and for bringing this movie to our attention uh, for Mostly Better. And, uh, yeah, is there anything you wanted to, you know, throw out there to listeners or just say about your Patreon, which, again, is, I think you've definitely got a bang for your buck now, especially now that it's been going on for so many years. I mean, it's just endless reviews you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, well, in theory, you were supposed to be able to get them on Letterboxd eventually. Um, originally, my my plan, or my, and I did it for a while, I would write it on Patreon, and then a month later, I would port it over to Letterboxd. So if you didn't want to subscribe, you only had to wait a month. Um, but I quickly discovered that it was very boring to do that, and so I don't do it very frequently, so now I'm about two years behind. So I think the most recent things that I've written directly on Letterboxd are from, like, 2021. Um, so really, most of my writing, you would have to subscribe. At this point, I did recently hit an exciting milestone, which is that I now have, um, I think I'm back up. It went, it dipped below again, and I think it's back up over a thousand total uh, patrons, which is way more than I ever imagined I would be able to get people to. (laughs) It's very hard to get people to pay even a tiny amount of money for internet writing, which is supposed to be free in everyone's mind. So the fact that I have managed to persuade a thousand people to uh, allow me to continue doing this is amazing. And I am eternally grateful to all of them, um, including you guys, or at least one of you. And um, so, yeah, I would encourage people, if you, uh, if you know my writing and you enjoy it, then 
it's only a dollar. I will always keep the reviews at $1 a month. There's other tiers that you can do other things. But if you just want to read what I write, um, it's only $1 a month. That's so little that you literally won't even notice that it's taken out of your account. Um, and it allows me to do this because literally I would not, I would have to go get some kind of actual job and I would no longer have time to write anything. So that's the only thing that makes it possible. All right. Yeah. Let's keep, keep Mike out of the labor market so we can keep all enjoying. <laughs> no more pizza hut with this. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because I am now old enough that I am unlikely to find employment even at a McJob <laughs> at this point. Like I, 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 I don't know what I would do. Like if I actually had to go find a job, I've got to go out there with a resume that says I've just been a freelance writer for literally the last 26 years. There's nobody they can call. Like I, I have no references of any kind. I'm kind of, I've kind of fucked myself, honestly. Right. <laughs> you just show them that you've been, uh, that, that you've been spending your time, uh, slightly increasing and then decreasing your rating uh, of a movie about blowing a dog. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about my, my old age and how that's going to work out. I'm probably not going to inherit a lot of money, although my parents are doing okay. But I also have, uh, six to eight siblings depending on how you which parents you're talking about so it's going to be divvied up a lot of ways and uh, i can't oh, count on that rough break so, yeah <laughs> at some point i'm going to have to figure out although i gotta say i did not think the patreon was going to last as long as it has so the fact that it's still growing after five years eh, maybe i'm maybe i'm not in as bad shape as i thought i was but um Anyway, so that's all the plugging that I'm going to do. You might have to expand the Patreon into into uh, podcasting at, at some point. You might have to get get down here and uh, in the into the bottom feeding world of podcasting with uh, the rest <laughs> of us. Please, there are there are people who there there are people out there who are trying to convince me that I should be doing this on YouTube instead as YouTube videos, and um, and yes, yes, that is that is how you would make a lot of money, and I would do that if I were 24. But I don't feel like anybody wants to watch like a 55-year-old man on YouTube talking about movies. I just like, I do not think there is a market for that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. See, I specifically, every once in a while, I'll find an, an old guy and I will love it. Because actually what irks me the most is feeling like there's this young guy who like is just, I don't know, he's just trying to move through the ranks or whatever it is and just get followers or whatever. Which like an old like an older person, more experienced, doesn't have that feeling. I think I would appreciate it. Let me amend that. I would do it if I were twenty-four, and I would also do it if I were seventy-four. I think I think if I were older than I am, that would there would be a market for that. Old guy reviews movies. It's it's being in the middle that I think is nugget. But that's just a sense that I have. It might be wrong. All right. Well, in twenty years, look out for Mike's YouTube channel. Yes. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I wouldn't rule it out. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.